welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. I'm Lane Nooney. I'm Yost Vendrana. And we are here digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. On the docket today, Wednesday, November 8th, we've been gone, but you've been in our hearts. We'll be recapping the past couple weeks of games news, starting with the launch of the new worker-owned game journalism outlet, Aftermath. Then we'll be sharing our hot takes on how FaZe flew too close to the sun, Bungie's sad but predictable layoffs, and Netflix's continued struggle to get its subscribers to play games. All this and more with your two very brisk co-hosts, but first, we've got some catching up to do. Yoast, we have been AFK for two weeks. First, I got a mysterious text from Yoast that just said, my brother is in town. Hmm. Things are happening. And I was like, okay, we can skip a week. And then a week later, I got a text that said, hello from Denmark. And I was like, oh, fuck. You never give a girl a heads up. It's just like, here I am, baby. Like I Just roll in, roll out <laughs> of your life as I see fit. I appreciate that. I appreciate your flexibility. I have this thing where I take on too many things and the logistics of, of a podcast are just not compatible with much. I, For Denmark, I was a good boy. I packed my microphone in my little suitcase, flew out there and did the whole thing. And I was like, I was ready to go, but it just never connects then. Like, it, like we need like an adult between us to like actually get everybody on the same schedule or whatever. Yeah. Once, and, once we were dealing with a five hour time difference, I was like, I can't, I don't know where this can fit in my schedule. That isn't one of us doing this at an hour where we're not going to be functional. So like, let's, yeah. just, um, let's just skip that one. Yeah. We, was. We, we desperately need a producer. <laughs> if you're out there and you have nothing to do but you want to work with two quasi-talented people Absolutely. reach out we can pay you nothing all right <laughs> it's a labor of love i don't want to end up feeding the beast you know, we gotta do the thing we gotta, you know it's just like that nobody wants to like it's like people writing papers they don't want to write like i don't want to read those papers and i say that because i just graded a whole bunch of midterms and it's always much more fun when people are leaning into the exercise and so i think by allowing ourselves a little bit of breathing room we can do such. Let me ask you this. Are your students doing worse, the same, or better compared to typical semesters? They're a little better. Oh, interesting. It, this is a pretty strong batch. I think the word got out. That's how it feels. Like it, it used to be more like, I like games, but I don't know anything about business, but I'll take this class. And now it's like, no, I have a plan. So I think that they are much more aware they seem much better versed in like data market structures like the basic vernacular of like economies and stuff like that so they know their way around as opposed to f learning as they go and that just you see that reflected in the papers at least on my end right? even the ones that say i don't have a formal business training or i don't study business so i don't know anything it's like they're brave enough to kind of put their foot in the water and see if they can can get somewhere with that. So it's uh, been impressive. What about you? Is that the same for you? No, I mean, I would say across my department, even um, just student concentration, student focus, student attendance way down the sense that there is. I'm also teaching in a 
humanities slash social science oriented department. And so that's what most of my students are. And I think the cumulative pressures of what's going on in the, the news cycle are just everyone's kind of out to lunch. I've got students missing weeks of class. I had almost half my class not show up to their meetings about their papers, mm-hmm. either never make a meeting or uh, not show up to their meeting. And this is this, I've been doing the assignment this way for years at this point. I've never seen this kind of just shattering across student focus. I was in a conversation with a student about it late last after class last week. And I mentioned this to her and she was like, oh, I thought this was just me. Like, I'm glad to, and I'm like, no, we're like, from my perspective, I'm seeing this across an entire class's performance and as well as hearing it about it from other professors. So I was just curious what your, how things were going on your end. I'm sorry to hear that. That's, um, that's the makes teaching a much bigger drag rather than the, the students are kind of half-assing it or whatever. Well, it's, or just it's, try- yeah, they're. Their concentration isn't there. Their lives seem more chaotic. They're not able to kind of pull their shit together. Um, and I, it, it does seem like that's a sort of cumulative effect of, of a lot of distress going on in the air. Yeah. Yeah, but, it's worse. It's worse. Do you think that people are distracted by other things, like, like bigger problems, let's say? I, I think that we are... Cumulatively speaking, we're three years deep into a pandemic. People are, and people are, we've got a new rash of COVID going around. I think people are exhausted. I think the environmental anxiety of this group, if they have any attention to that, is through the roof, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're um, really stressed out about it. And yeah, at least in my department, which where the students tend to be quite politically aware. In a media and communications department, yeah, I think the Israel-Palestine stuff is absolutely di- incredibly distressing. Yeah, I see it the same way. Like, it's the, um, I don't know what it's like to be that age, going through a pandemic, and, and Israel and Palestine, that's just the most recent one, right? There's yeah. also and, the and one a, that's still long, going in the UK. Yeah. It's, it's, and so, like, and these people all live there or they're from there or whatever. It's like, this is on your face all day long. And it's, it's incredible. It's inescapable. And it's also totally, you're rendered entirely helpless. So for that young generation, I think like I'm a grown man. So I have a plan. I know you have a plan. Like you can hold your own in the world. But when you're 19 and these large scale issues kind of just overwhelm you on a daily basis, what do you do? So, so I think it's a, I think it's the precursor to something more positive perhaps where they rebound because the moment they get time to themselves, right? Like I do find Washington Square this interesting Petri dish of human behavior. When you walk out there with the sun's out, it's like an open air festival, right? Everybody's just playing music and expressing themselves to the fullest extent. And that's kind of nice. Like they really do thrive on that. But the grind of it all, the work part of it, that, that gets a little less attention, obviously. I think that's, uh, that's fair to say. No. What were you up to in Denmark? I was freezing. <laughs> it's just like unbelievably cold. There's a conference. It's a miniature version or a smaller version of South by Southwest. It's called This. Um, this? Invite, yeah. Is this a Danish conference or did it just happen to be held in Denmark? No, it's a Danish one. So they have the Danish media industry. And so it's really a, a, a mainstream media conference. And they also added a games component this year. And so we met in Austin, 
if in March or whatever, and then he had a few phone calls and conversations. And they invited me to come do a keynote there, opening the conference on Tuesday to basically give a lay of the land. So the Danish games market is actually quite successful and well-known despite its modest size. You have Subway servers is from there and uh, Hitman, for instance, was like one of these franchises developed there. Unity, our everybody's favorite game development engine, is, uh, is originally from Denmark. So it's actually a, quite a productive and industrious little country for the 6 million people that live there. So I was curious to figure that out. I, I went out there on the invitation and kind of meet and greet. Like So much of my job is moving into a place of explaining to people that are not in games how games work and what that's like and how their business can play a role in that and all this. And so it's a really interesting thing to see from a country like that has a very well-established media industry in the same way that I've done these in Germany and the Netherlands and France. And it's um, just to kind of get a sense of like, they all see it as a relevant cultural industry, but they're not sure how to properly engage with it. How do we get out of that weird like cargo pants era into <laughs> something that's a little bit more presentable perhaps? And so that's why I was there. It's a, and it was great. I, I flew out Sunday midnight. I was back Wednesday midnight here in New York. So 72 hours as per usual. And it was, um, I learned some new stuff that was totally worth the trip. So it's, it's a lot of effort with the time difference, but you know, it always takes you out of your usual thing. Like when you're kind of half awake. And so I was preparing my slides at like 3am on Monday or so. I don't even know, but you know, you have a dinner, then you fall asleep for three hours and then you wake up and you can't fall asleep. It's like, let me just do the work and then do a workout and take a nap and then go on stage, whatever. And it's like this whole protocol, but you're out of your usual routine and it always just ever so slightly tilts my perspective in a way that's incredibly productive. So I, I love going on these trips. Very nice. Very nice. What have you been up to? Because you have been not just patiently waiting for students and grading papers, have you now? <laughs> yeah, I was getting around. I went up to the, God, two weeks ago, I was at the Sheep and Wool Festival up in nope. Dutchess County, New York. The what? The Sheep and Wool Festival, the crown jewel of Dutchess County. <laughs> okay. All right, I'm uh, just processing this. You've lived it. You visit upstate now and again. And by upstate, we define that as anything north of Westchester. Too much to the frustration of people who live in like Albany. Um, yeah, I'm dating a person who lives upstate. And... Part of the trade-off is we don't just get to spend every weekend in the city. So we did some, the Sheep and Wool Festival, we were going for the agricultural elements of the experience. We were going for the sheep, didn't know about the wool. This is apparently one of the biggest wool expos. Maybe, it certainly seemed like in the East Coast, maybe in the country, it was grannies for days inside these massive, these kind of massive barn-sized buildings just selling wool knit sweaters fucking knitting needles lanolin products everything you can imagine everyone was there in their most extravagant knits it was kind of ren fair adjacent in a way um i was my girlfriend did not want me to wear my cape i had brought it because it was going to be so cold upstate and she was like, I'm not ready to be seen with you in public in your cape. And then we went to the Re the Sheep and Wool Festival and there were people in capes. I was so annoyed. I was like... <laughs> Yo, there's so much to unpack here. 
There's, we also attended a, we watched a sheep her a dog sheep herding demonstration. So they explain how they train dogs to herd sheep and the different kinds of whistles and commands that dogs are taught in order to move sheep through a pasture. A bunch of these bully men commanding their dogs, all the grannies going apeshit in the back. (laughs) Fully armed with knitting needles. So was there also a lot of shawarma then? We only got caramel corn. We were not trying to like have a meal at the Sheep and Wool Festival. But so do they have like a section with like a giant freezer where you can get like gyro sandwiches? and like no, that's it's not that. a, that's not the vibe. No. It should really be like sheep and wool and meat. Then it would be a complete. Now that sounds amazing. Like It's just like you always find yourself in like these like, I don't even know that this exists or where, I wouldn't even know where they've Googled this. But you always like you regularly go to the, these sort of, I don't know, these festivals of, I don't know what the, Call it like this is it's both like it ranks really high on the hipster level, but it's also something that I feel like has been going on for centuries and I'm just stupidly unaware. So I really <laughs> this, enjoy this window into like this other culture. <laughs> yeah. And then the next week I was in LA for the uh, History of Technology conference. And then this past weekend I went up to a farm in uh, on the west side of the Hudson mm-hmm. and we uh, went through a ritual called putting the farm to sleep. So this is where you tear out all the old vegetation, you divot the beds, you fill the divots with a bulb of garlic so that garlic grows over the winter mm-hmm. in all of these beds, and then you cover them with hay. Um, and so it's, it's like a whole day of like hard farm labor, um, pulling wheelbarrows around and moving giant piles of hay and th- being bent over. Taking, taking Tylenol <laughs> at the end. Yeah, of the- and then you eat giant communal soups at the end. That's oh, that must be nice. <laughs> like all the leftover stuff, they just boil it to shit, and then you eat it. It's amazing. Yes, that's really fun. Like, look, there's the experience living in the city is only complete if you also get to go up into these exper- like these muddy places where you just like do shit like that. I really enjoy my time upstate always. It sounds like you're the same. It's um, it's. I think that's the the natural compensation for living the city, because that doesn't exist here. Like it's naturalizing or normalizing. Well, I'm glad. Are you bringing any of this its, stuff over? New York has its underground pockets for sure, and I've spent plenty of time in those as well. But um, I was just on a film festival on a boat on on Saturday. Just don't worry about it. Don't worry a about it. this. Might- film festival on a boat. I'm missing out, man. Getting settling down with a bunch of kids, yeah. like the world is leaving me behind. Like you're busy giving keynotes in Denmark. Ugh, you want to switch? We can't. We can't all be a big deal. Uh, I'm pretty sure no one wants to hear what I would say, which is, <laughs> stop trying to make money. Oh. <laughs> well, that's they're actually not, they're not so hard on that over there. They're really just you like know? looking to like figure out how to do that better. But it's the um. I forgot to tell you. So I also met fellow Dutchman Hank Rogers. Okay, yeah, you texted me about this. Hank Rogers of Tetris business fame. He was he's infamously the main character of the Tetris movie. He's the guy who infamously hammers out the deal between Nintendo and Alexei Pajanov to port Tetris to the Game Boy. How was it meeting Hank? It's I, so I didn't know I didn't see the the movie, for one, I missed out on all that. But yeah, you know, it's always weird to see a Dutch person. 
<laughs> he's just like, hey, and then Dutch words follow, like, oh, goedemorgen, hoe gaat het? Whatever. And he's like, okay, and, and that's like, you just acknowledge that all you have in common. And then you're trying to kind of make it work. But, you know, the Dutch, in my experience, are generally kind of, yeah, we can hang out, but we don't have to kind of thing. So it's very, it's very, it's like, it's not, there's not a lot of obligation in there, which I appreciate. He's nice. He, he's on his own. He's a bit of a, like this movie star life now. So he's got like the cool blazer kind of thing. He's got like, like the, um, he, he lives, where did he live? In Hawaii or Bermuda? Mostly in Hawaii. That's where he's lived. Most, he was like 11. He left the Netherlands and he basically moved into like all these sunny places and he settled, I guess, in Hawaii. He was, so he has like that sort of bronze tan, this permatan that he's got going on because of that. He's a surfer and all this. So he's a nice, relaxed guy. Like it's, he's doing that. He, uh, he seems fairly laid back. It's not like, I don't, it's. What was it, he doing there? Why is he, Hank he, Rogers like a player in the Denmark, the Danish media? Yeah, uh, well, so, yeah, let's cut through the shit here, Yost, and really get to the tough questions. He was part of a fireside because he is basically trying to fix the climate. That's the short oh. And so he's, I guess he's parlaying his fame into, um, what do they call it? Some kind of better way to deal with the world. I forget the name now. I don't know it off the top of my head. But he he's basically promoting this message and he's like, look, we're just not doing enough. And so he's just pushing, which I is this he could be doing all kinds of other things, but he's choosing to do this. And so he comes around and he has a little spiel. So they did a half hour fireside with him. He also explained that he was excited. Like, look, if I can come to a games conference and talk about the thing that I'm interested in, he's like, Of course I'll do it. So he came out and he flew out. And it's um and the I guess the takeaway is this it's like he's in New York now. He has been living in New York for the last two years and he is totally happy to talk to us. So we should talk to him. Just, I want to hear what he has to say. Like, I would love to hear the backstory or at least like have some kind of oral history of some of this Tetris stuff. That'd be interesting. And kind of like, you know, what's it like, what do you do as a video game celebrity? Like I, um, (laughs) I, I once sat in a bar in a hotel in Milan next to Nolan Bushnell. And not knowing that it was him for like an hour. And then only once he like made his way to the elevator, he's like, holy shit, that's the guy from Pac-Man. Whatever. And it's just like... That's the guy from Pong, honey. Whatever. That's That, that tells you what I know. That's why I need <laughs> you, Lane. It's the Atari guy? Yeah. <laughs> I know him as the Chuck E. Cheese guy. That's how I know. He's like Captain Chuck E. Cheese. But so like you sit next to this celebrity, you don't really notice them or recognize them. You should, right? You should know all this stuff if you proclaim to be working in this space. And then you're like, but then also like, what do you ask this like 70 year old man? Like, yeah. hey, who's do you been, like games? Like what the, that's, yeah, I don't start conversation. Well, you just, you talk to them like they're any old person. Cause I had, <laughs> that's like, not necessarily a better <laughs> prompt for me. For, <laughs> hey, yeah. feller. How about hey those there. Italians? Hey, Nolan. Yeah, but... How do you feel about Warner Communications? Did he ever wear the mouse suit in his own restaurants? That's what I would want to know. It's like, like imagine like this whole... I think the, yeah, the post-games history of Nolan Bushnell is the one waiting to be written. There's a fascinating kind of quasi-biography to be done there period that isn't just a isn't just a hand job like i would love to see like a real historical um say how you dive always you're never gonna get anything less right this whole conversation it's making me think about 
the interview we're going to be doing tomorrow that we're going to drop in a later episode, we're going to be interviewing David Nieberg about his new co-authored book, Mainstreaming and Games Journalism, which he wrote with Maxwell Foxman. And this question of are games mainstream? And he and Foxman have a surprising answer to that, which is no, they are not. Is they, that games are very specifically not mainstream. They remain to be niche. And it, it just it seems like a lot of things you're talking about kind of continue to relive this tension of we we know that they're a form of entertainment. We know that they make money. How do we get into that? Can you, is it that simple, right? The problem of games are almost universally played and yet poorly understood almost everywhere. So anyway. I like all these Dutch people in the games industry. That's great. <laughs> Just representing all these That's different right. That's right. Groups. Dutch representation was really taking a hit. So I'm glad we've I'm glad we've shored that. Yeah, or maybe we're like the sleeper cell, like the like <laughs> the Dutch are like the black horse of gaming. They just like pop up and be like, holy shit, that is another Dutch person? That's amazing. <laughs> I had no idea. I'm excited for that conversation too. David and I go back um more than a while and I've, and I've as a result also followed his career and he's really putting a lot of the work and effort and a lot of the issue of games journalism it came up in my class last week around how large companies have a lot of power and make you try to bend your narrative to their interests and all the stuff and it's not outright direct influence and at the same time it kind of is it's this gray area of like people in there and what they need from each other and how they leverage those relationships. And he's one of the few people that has actually written quite clearly on this, very lucidly on it. We'll talk about that in the next episode, but it's certainly something I look forward to. All right. We've been going on about ourselves for quite a minute here. Shall we get on to the news? We shall. All right. Little musical interlude. So ironically enough, speaking of games journalism, mm-hmm. a new Games Journalism Outlet just dropped today, this Tuesday, November 7th, when we're doing this recording. Now that The Verge has finally gotten on Blue Sky, I can get tech news through my social media sites and read this great article about the founding of Aftermath. So aftermath.site is the website. Oh, the name's a little tough from an SEO perspective, because if you type Aftermath Games, there is also a game called Aftermath. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that those steam results were the first things that I got. So Aftermath is a new independent worker owned media outlet started by four ex Kotaku folks, Gita Jackson, Nathan Grayson, Riley McLeod and Luke Plunkett. It's really charming to see these kind of names and faces that I've followed for so long uh, are now banding together to, to launch their own outlet. And they're what's, I think interesting about this is they're really invested in this alternative model that they're borrowing from outlets like Hellgate, which is basically working on a a subscription basis rather than trying to generate revenue dominantly through advertising. So this is, I think, exciting transition, right? If people are willing to pay $5 a month for a Substack, why not pay seven and get the news from like four or five different writers? So... I, th- I think that this intermediation is, is very timely. I think it makes a lot of sense. I am um, more and more, I don't know how it is in your life, but I do identify specific writers nowadays and I'm indifferent to whatever publication they work at. Yes. Like their same. publication dictates, of course, like the structure, the general interests or topics that they cover. But 
they are, it's really their curiosity and the kind of pen that they use to write. That's really exciting to me. The, um, and so, so those are the, because most of the information is out there anyways, but you just have their specific perspective. I think there's a, a bunch of examples of like initiatives around it. Like Substack is one, like what's it called? Um, Platformer. Is that the one from um, that guy, K Casey, whatever his name is? Yeah, that's a good one for me. He spun off from um, Casey Newton. That's it. He spun off from um, more conventional media and he started his own thing and it's doing quite well. Like you have these newsletters that have hundreds of thousands of paying subscribers, which I think is amazing. I think that sort of disintermediation where you just take your celebrity and go and really manifest your own vision. I think that's the best way to do it. It's just too much noise and like banding together and having like a bit of a, like a neglected group of people together. I think that's a really good way to, to help everybody else filter through a lot of the bunk and get yeah. some new ideas out there. Yeah. And to really invest in yourselves, right? This isn't the, this isn't the startup wing of a larger corporation, because as we've seen, when those outlets can't produce the SEO, a big corp new media corporation wants, right? They get, they get shut down. This is what we've been seeing happen for quite a while now in the games journalism business. So to really push forward on a worker owned model is really exciting and speaks to kind of, I think the angle that their coverage is, they're invested in covering issues around unionization, layoffs, kind of labor in the game industry, capitalism in the role of the game industry. So I think there's going to be some cool synergies also between the sort of topics we talk about here and what's going to be going on in Aftermath. Anyway, I just wanted to lead with that because I wanted to say congratulations and happy start. Happy first day of publication to our friends over at Aftermath. Cheers to many more. Since we're a, a little bit behind on pace of the world because of our respective schedules i do think we should catch up on a few thoughts like so i want to in rapid fire cover at least a few of the following i want to talk about phase clan first yep and its acquisition by gamesquare then there is also you had some other things with regarding to bungie that you want to discuss yeah, just acknowledging the bungie layoffs and those are getting particularly poorly received from the Destiny 2 community. And also, I'm surprised you didn't hear my cackle from halfway around the world about Netflix. And I, I did actually hear. Yeah, that, that it turns out only 1% of Netflix customers, subscribers, play Netflix games. And I was delighted to hear this. Um, well, you are so, you're such a hater for Netflix. It's just amazing. I'm not, it's not a, it's not a ding to the devs. It's just like, guys, this doesn't, what are you doing? Anyway, we can talk about it later, but. Let's start, let's start with FaZe. Let's do it a bit order. All right. FaZe acquired for 17 million. 18 and a half. 18 and a half. 18 and a half, which might seem like a lot, except that when it was launched by its SPAC last year, it was at 725 million. What is the percentage of that write down, Yoast? How much value did it shed? Many percents. I don't Many. know. Ninety-eight percent. That it's the here's so he, look. You look at esports as a category as something like, hey, this is exciting. This is the future. This is it emerges from this popularity of free-to-play titles where you also have to have events and in-person like these get-togethers, whatever. And it's kind of cool. Like it, it makes organic sense. I think the execution has been shit. 
And it's for a few reasons. So first of all, the, the data says as much, right? The write down from what was originally posted as a billion dollar valuation, then it was 725. And then basically they've been just trying to retain value as much as they could because it just went nowhere. Like moments after their initial public offering, their share price started to decline and they've been facing what they call delisting for several months now, right? When your share price goes below a dollar for an extended period of time, then the, the stock exchanges go, yeah, no thanks. We're not doing this penny crap over here. Go home. <laughs> right? It's just like the margins are too small. Nobody makes enough money on the transactions. It's like it's dying. So you should either like make some changes and like, have, like stare yourself in the mirror for a while and make some changes or just go be somewhere else. Can't sit with us. That's, the, that's basically what they're saying. And so that's a kind of a big a quick turnaround for something that was so hyped for a long time, right? This is one of the strongest brands. This is one of these notable people. They have the, the credibility of their background. The problem is, of course, both in and external. You could say, oh, well, the pandemic, extra geniusly, you have all these different things has changed, like the market has shifted, the economy is softer, whatever. That's all kind of true, kind of, but not really. In fairness, like Overwatch is now also going to be run by someone else. Activision Blizzard went really hard after that licensing program at the time. And you just kind of see everybody trying to get their fingers in the jar, their hands in the cookie jar before anybody put any cookies in it. And you just like, so it's just a bunch of fat fingers. Everywhere. Yeah, the issue here is that everyone wanted it to be so much more than it probably ever could have been. And in some ways, when you saddle these businesses with expectations they cannot carry, then you turn what could have been small or mild or moderate success into a failure, right? And it, for me, it's really emblematic of the way that, that this kind of, yeah, fat, fing, fat finger hunger mm. is actively destructive to culture industries, right? It's like, this didn't have to turn out this way, but part of it is, the, is this kind of like rapacious idiocy that we see in the investment field to just, because they don't care if it fails, right? They're doing this to nine other companies. All they need is for one of them to succeed and they make their money back. So here, here's, so it's that. It's the culture, like the sort of predatory investment. Like be people, like they invest in it only to see what they can get out of it as opposed yeah. to for the love of it. And I think that that's one thing that was missing for me from a lot of these initiatives. Like, look, do people care about esports? Of course. Do, should players care? Of course. But the people that are building these institutions around them, I don't know if their heart was exactly in the right place. At least the numbers don't say as much. No, absolutely were not. And then the, <laughs> but there's also the, so then you could free face clan or face holdings from all of that and say, oh, well, it just happened to them. I also disagree with that. It's also their own stupid fault, right? Yeah. They, it, this is mostly dudes and they, this is rampant misogyny. They had one girl on the team. But is it Grace Von Dean or whatever? Like it is a Stranger, um, Stranger Things actress. Legit player, brings celebrity to the team. Hey, great, we're making some progress on diversity. This, should, this is good for the business. This is good for the franchise also. And then they chased her off by being jerks. You're like, what the fuck, man? It's like, it's just unbelievable like how stupid that is. As opposed to like, look, you have a chance to really lead the space here. You have a chance to really like provide something new and really break some molds. And what you're doing is just reinforcing what everybody already thought you were going to do anyways. And now you're yep. broke. So, so the full disclaimer I have to add here, by the way, is like, so it was acquired by GameSquared, which was previously a company called Engine Media, where I was an advisor for a while. Okay. 
Okay. And so I have no interest in any of this, like uh, no financial gain or anything from any of my opinions here. But it's interesting to see how you now have all these like small fry companies kind of try to buy each other. The short version yeah. of that. Let the, me finish well, the, the same thing. Let me finish sorry. that. I need to give you numbers so that I can assert my authority. Sure. In 2021, the collective enterprise value for like the largest esports, publicly traded esports companies was $1.1 billion. If you take Face Holdings, Esports Entertainment Group, Gfinity, and so on, and then in 2022, a year later, it fell from 1.1 billion to 270 million, or roughly a, a value decrease of 75%. So yeah. it just decimated its own business. It's just unbelievably sad. Wow, your authority is roundly felt over you know, here on on this side of the mic. Good as it uh, fucking well should. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of the, it, it was interesting trying to parse a lot of the headlines because m the way that most of the journalistic outlets made sense of this was not to name check GameSquare, which is something that most people have not heard of, but to say that this was a part of a gaming venture firm part owned by Dallas Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones. And so, yeah, I was hoping that you could put this a little bit into context when assets are cheap like this what you do is you just like combine them so they're just buying up ip they're buying up the infrastructure and sort of the production teams to create basically content and reach all these people so when you go through their earnings reports for like a game square they will insistently hammer on the fact of how large the audience is and how nothing else is addressing it very similar to what you'll hear the um, media division for Activision Blizzard say, like, look, this market is underserved. Esports reaches a disproportionate number of young people compared to conventional sports and all this kind of stuff. So those narratives permeate both these all of these companies by taking this opportunity of just buying out this set of assets, like for nineteen million dollars, like yeah. you could really yeah. do worse. So it's sold for parts. That's the nice way of saying it. It comes so, down to trying to build economies of scale from there. Yeah, this is fascinating. I had a game industry encyclopedia entry on phase two years ago, right? It looked very different than what it is right now. What do you think happens to phase? What does selling for parts look like for a house streaming influencer brand? Are any of these dudes going to have jobs at phase in a year? I, th I suspect some of them will. I think they're probably the loudest two, the most best known one or two in the team that will probably try to split off once their contract runs out and try their own thing. Like, wh why would you stay? Like, now you just make a salary. Like, the upside is probably minimized or gone at this point for them. So I imagine that they'll, they will, like, leave the company the, the first chance they get if they feel that they can build something better on their own that makes them more money or they can speak their truth or whatever they feel like they're probably, I don't want to be part of a corporation. It's um, it's really the, the building of, and then everybody else will fall into place and become, it's, I, as much as I like all this celebrity around live streaming, it's like, yeah, but you're really just this army of radio broadcasters out there that is just talking in between songs. There's millions of those people doing it around the world. It's like, you're just, that's just what these people are too. They're playing games. I get it, but they're just the voice that's go that goes with the rest of the entertainment. And so it has a personality. They're kind of clever. They make jokes. They kind of find a niche where they can do well and they know things about. At the same time, that is mostly people whose name you'll never know. Uh, they just talk in between the songs. And so I think that's where a lot of these live streamers will go to.
Wow. That's, That's the takedown on FaZe? Yeah, chances are FaZe is not ever going to make it back onto this podcast. That would be my hunch. <laughs> I don't think anything important is probably going to come out of them. If I have to, to listen to my students talk less about gamer lifestyle branding, that will be a net win. That's <laughs> Why? Oh, Jesus. Lifestyle branding? Let's just, like, I'd rather, oh, God. You got academic lifestyle branding written all over you. You got your books. <laughs> you know, it's like you got all that. No, it's true. It's true. I think the the commoditization. Oh, yeah, another famous. hoodie manufacturer. Okay, like <laughs> that's what we need. More, more merch. More merch. All right. So, turning to other forms of downsizing in the industry, it's it's really so. It's just about stuff gets smaller. That seems to be the <laughs> the great is that somehow diminish- the games are doing well, but the people get smaller has has been a focus of of, of what's going on. So last week, uh, Bungie, the latest Sony studio to be hit with layoffs. Yos, do you have any more context on what has been happening at PlayStation more generally? So PlayStation is switching gears a little bit. Uh, we're in the second half of the cycle. They also brought the Slim, right? So, so you see how... From the hardware side, for instance, they're just a more established and a more established part of the cycle for them. And so it's all about efficiencies. It's all about paring down the cost of things and creating overhead, um, you know, reducing overhead and, and improving margin. And I think what's happening on, so that's the hardware side. I think it also translates to changes in the software side and the development side. Um, it's a... So there's a few different sad parts, right? But so here's, so it's always shitty when people lose their job, um, but that sort of seems to be the year for it. So it's a it's a sort of broader occurrence that also touches, of course, the largest console maker out there. What's different, I think, is um, this, Bungie was originally purchased for $3.6 billion to really play a role in Sony becoming more, um, uh, I say adapt at multiplayer online games, yep. which is really like it's great at solo games, yep. Yep. right? I've just I just started Spider Man too. It's amazing, but like multiplayer, that's where they lack, and that is of course what's popular now, and, and that's what the audience seems to want. So they have to get good with that. Bungie is a great way to go. Whenever a large organization buys a company like Bungie or any studio with like established and new IP. The, the established IP becomes, of course, the quickest way to make their money back. So they blow that out and make that big. And you can do that by just taking by leveraging your distribution and, and really getting the game out there in a massive way that you could do because you're now parent owner of this asset. At the same time, of course, you're going to look for some efficiency. So probably some of the people that work there, they, there's now maybe some doubling up, maybe some jobs in marketing or distribution or whatever that now are redundant. But the big sad part of all this is that you end up with everything that was half-baked, this new innovative IP that they were building on that they hadn't really released, that is very unlikely to see the light of day. And that's kind of the sad thing, especially from a place like Bungie. Like you're letting go of these people, but with it, you're probably also deprioritizing some of their like innovative visions that they had for the future. That's well, I think, this was announced in a very uneven way. It did not begin with a mass announcement. Uh, basically, some of the 
first folks to come forward talking about losing their jobs were people doing community management at the game. And that those are, those are folks who the fans directly interface with, right? They know who those mm-hmm. people are and that, that hits the hardest. I know from, you know, some inside context I have that there were people finding out about this on Twitter, right? Or, you know, whatever other social site. It's definitely not been good for a morale point of view. The fandom is, is pretty annoyed. Um, Cause also there's been a drop in the quality of the, of the new expansions. Uh, and, and a lot of questions remain sort of unsaid. Bungie's paying a lot of lip service to how the next expansion is really going to be great. Uh, but the fans are asking, obviously, how can that be true when you're getting rid of staff who's worked at your company for years? So it really is just another kind of depressing mess. It does seem that some of the executives, uh, gave up bonuses. Certainly, I think the CEO gave up an annual bonus and some of the other executives too, the exact scale of which has not been specified by Bungie. Bungie's allowing a lot of commentary to circulate because they're not filling in the gaps of people's questions. But it's not clear the extent to which kind of trying to pay the bills by cutting into executive compensation, how much that made a difference. It's really general bummer. I think is further underscoring a lot of the sentiments folks in the game industry have about uh, needing deeper protections, right? This kind of behavior at CD Projekt Red led to the establishment of a union. And mm-hmm. it would certainly be interesting if similar activity began, began happening at shops like Bungie. Yeah, look, the thing is, it's like, it seems always so surprising that when things don't go well, that these large companies also have to have this bloodletting. What's surprising, I think you're right, is like the, like how they like make a mess out of that. Like, that's like, look, I, it's never fun when you have to let go of people for whatever reason. But you know, there should be a much more like hammer down process in place. This is really this does not inspire trust, particularly in something that's kind of what I think is. It's a natural outgrowth of the fact that as games become these online phenomena that you would have a much closer relationship to your fan base, the community managers and all that, like that's your soft tissue. That's that it used to be you make the game and then ship it. And then sometimes you see a fan at E3, but now you are in constant contact with the thousands of people that love your game. In fact, it is part of your development model nowadays, right? Baldur's Gate was a success because they very slowly developed this in conversation, in dialogue with their most avid fans. And so the idea that you would somehow make cuts or mismanage that fabric that is so precious to build up is not just sad for the people who lost their jobs, but it's just like that really reflects poorly on this company's strategic vision. Like, really? Like, you should probably cut back on infrastructure more than you should do on, like, the soft tissue that you have with your fans. So, so I just feel like that it doesn't feel like they did a good job, and it's I'm not sure that the priorities were all lined up in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, what's the general player morale going to be for a new expansion when that soft tissue is being cut into? I wouldn't be holding out a lot of hope either that that Bungie is going to quote do it right and exceed my expectations. So yeah. All of our condolences to folks trying to figure out what comes next after Bungie. And while there are no layoffs yet, things continue to not look great <laughs> for the games division of Netflix. Uh, so subtle. So subtle. 
so subtle. I actually, it's, you know, I asked you last. Do you think? I, I you asked think, you. Just say I it. asked you last, last episode, three weeks ago, to create a predictions page for mm-hmm. our podcast because you know you have the money on Sarah Bond becoming the new CEO of Activision, and and I was right about that one. By the way, we'll talk about that. Was it announced? She's now the president of Xbox. Yeah, she's the president of Xbox. Yeah. So who's taking over Activision? That, I don't know. But she is... Hold on, is Do she I now? not know this because I got off Twitter? I'm I'm so... Ugh. So they did give her a massive upgrade. Oh, That's, okay. Okay. Come. So... And so she leads the whole thing. So everybody reports it to her. Okay. Wild. Amazing. Yeah, I think okay. so. so. My <laughs> prediction is that Netflix games is going to... I would say we will see shrinkage in that space in 36 to 48 months i just i don't think that thing's gonna last five years you got you, you think it's gonna just shrivel uh, up? i think that will get put on really? the block i this comes from after reading the intel that less than one percent of netflix's total subscribers play games daily even though mm-hmm. there's been a 3x increase in the amount of game offerings this has really not moved Almost since they they launched this, they've got two hundred forty seven point fifteen million subscribers. Less than one percent, less than two point four million of those play on a daily basis. Netflix needs every bit of that revenue to be producing the content that people are actually paying Netflix for. But it, it also now needs that content to float multiple game development studios. I read this and I was like, this is no surprise. I don't really think this is about content. This is about the difficulty of accessing the games, right? That that, that mm-hmm. they're, they're locked behind Netflix's walled garden. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think anyone is going to stay on Netflix to play the Wednesday mobile game. Or I don't think enough of your user base is going to do that to make this ultimately an, an investment that is going to gain new subscribers. They're just, they're flatlining in that sense. They've got nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. And so now they're just working on retention. But the idea that funding your own game studios is retention, the hit to miss ratio is just too big. You know? I, um, I, I don't think you're wrong, but I'll disagree with you. Netflix has time. Right, and that I think what what Netflix is showing, different from what we saw with Stadia, is a willingness to just take its sweet ass time and really develop its offering that, in a way that's uniquely theirs, and has some kind of personality that that reminds you of Netflix. So the fact that the adoption rate is one percent out of that whole universe, what was their total number of subscribers? Two hundred and forty-seven million. Right, so one percent of that well, is two point two million players play their games daily. Right, so so let's say two point two daily active user base. Okay, let's go to Steam DB. Let's come up to like come up so, some I kind mean, of way. So let's look at comparative downloads for other games in the mobile sector. Right, Gardenscapes. Uh, 531 million. Candy Crush Maker King has 234. Uh, Clash of Clans. DAU. You know, for. No, no, but. Look, if you go just about. This is apples to oranges, but if you go. But that's also. But that's also. 
DAUs, that's that's daily across all their across seventy four games, right? That no, that's fine. But see, like it's a platform, right? So it's a I'm just trying to get a, si- a sense of size. And so if I had two point two daily active users on whatever it is, I'm doing just fine. Right? So you have to figure out like except okay, none of it's actually bringing. It's not driving revenue. No, it, it, brings, that it, it that's is why only I, creating costs and you are hoping that mm-hmm. it continues to keep users paying in the system. Users who very likely there is some percentage of them who would have paid, who would have stayed anyway. And mm-hmm. is the ones it's retaining equaling out the amount that you're paying to float. Mm-hmm. How many fucking studios do they have now? Because none of these games cost anything. None of these games have any in built-in microtransactions. They're losing any potential licensing money by doing it themselves. And also, they have anticipation. One of the things they're talking about is how they're going to release a Grand Theft Auto game for the platform. So now you're paying probably through the teeth to Rockstar for GTA IP for what a mobile GTA game? All right, let me ask you this: Do you not like? Do you not like games? I do like games because he has a company just spending its whole livelihood on giving you free shit. Let them burn the fucking house down. It's the you, you know, know what? The, powerful, what doing is, is powerful argument. I think what drives my sense of frustration with this is when you see mm-hmm, mm-hmm. large corporations act like games are okay. a magic bullet. And you see that that they're what they're going to do is pour a ton of money into something that they don't really understand. They've hired people who understand it, but I think I think tying it to the Netflix platform walled garden is never going to drive the kind of retention you hope. It just feels like guys in a room being like, "Well, games are real big today. I guess that's mm-hmm. what we have to make now, right?" It feels like what they're doing is spackling things onto a problem. And that problem is that their unlimited growth doesn't fucking exist, right? And I think it's the mm-hmm. aspiration of using games to try to solve that larger problem, right? We have to make more. Always we have to produce more. We have to hoover up more culture. We have to manufacture more content because God forbid we don't constantly grow. Like, where are we supposed okay, to land? So, okay, so... so- I totally subscribe to much of what you say. Yes, it's like this notion that it's up and to the right forever. That's BS. But it creates a lot of like dumb strategic ideas and initiatives to kind of keep that going or pretend that it's still going that way. And I think that's when we talked earlier about Face Clan, that's exactly what you get. Like you all of a sudden, it doesn't just go down a little bit. Like the whole thing just deflates and now it's worth bucket, buckle. And so you end up with... However, with Netflix, I think what they're looking at is like, look, we realize that's exactly the, that it's not going to happen. What they're doing is making a very simple equation between the money that they spent to retain people longer in their ecosystem compared to the money that they earned from keeping those people in the ecosystem longer, right? So if they can add whatever, if they spend $100 million a year adding people, keeping people in the ecosystem for another you know, six months, which would have otherwise would have dropped out earlier, that revenue that they make in addition to it, that's what 
makes up the difference for them. And so if you do that on a, so they don't just look at gaming as like, oh, this is a cool thing to be in, or this is what the kids want. It's like, how do we extend and they call that uh, appreciate, like increase the value of an, an average lifetime subscriber, right? Did they stay? Because the World of Warcraft used to do the same thing. Like you would go and talk to them and say, well, the average lifetime Except duration is 18 months. people paying for World of Warcraft were there to play a game. No one subscribes well, to Netflix to play a game. Well, uh, 1% of them does. Or right? actually, we don't it's know a, that. We don't know if they subscribe to play a game. They play games because games are incidentally present. Right. So, so I don't disagree with you. I think that there's a lot that still needs to be addressed. And I think the logic that, that pushes a lot of this is kind of like this ugh, very corporate, very dumb thinking. I do believe that we see a better example in Netflix than we saw with Stadia. Right? Stadia was very much, that was a quick first mover advantage. Let's get there fast. Just like the same way that Meta jumped into VR and nobody cared and still doesn't. <laughs> right. It's still this nascent category. So, so I see these large tech firms. The, the thing is that they, it's not that they do this because they want to get in there because they're really like corporate raiders. They don't have a choice. Like they can't find growth anywhere else. So they must necessarily go into gaming in some capacity. And this is their best. So bet. in that sense, I find them sort of emblematic with what I think is a massive systemic problem with precisely what you just said, which is quote unquote, they have no choice and that we live in an economic mm -hmm. model in which Apparently, no one has any choice until we just ravage the entire system until there's fucking nothing less, until we've squeaked every content creator for as little as we can pay them, and we've inflated shareholder value to astronomical proportions until the whole thing implodes and we just like build another version of that. Um, and I think that that, like watching that cycle happen in real time, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, to root for its failure is a very particular <laughs> kind of position. I want to root for the failure of none of these workers. But what I look for are these moments that like the that defy the tech industry's continual insistence that it can reinvent itself out of this problem. Look, you know? I agree. It's like they have to come up with a plan, right? I mean, this... Yeah, they have to. They have to do something, you know. Um, it's and what you can do is like I mean, the, the at that scale, the options available are relatively limited. This is why Microsoft just purchased Activision Blizzard. What are you going to do? Are you going to come up with like a, the world's biggest shooter game by yourself internally? No, you just buy it. <laughs> like Disney was going to allegedly buy EA. Why is there? Because it's just easier for them. They're not going to do it. It's a stupid idea. But they, it's. Through acquisitions, that's how you enter these new markets. So Netflix is going on a different route. They're at least trying to do it this way by gradually buying small components and rolling it up into a big snowball. But at the same time, those are the law, laws of the economy, right? If you are a publicly traded uh, company, that's what you end up having. You have to show growth. You have to show innovation. You have to show product development and improvement. And, of course, an appreciation of like, the average user's lifetime value. Like That number has to go up somehow. Telecom companies do the same thing. Manufacturers, oil companies, they all look at it this way. Like what are some of the bottlenecks we can create artificially and what are some of the opportunities that we can capture uniquely to drive revenue? Because that's what everybody cares about. It only has to go up and to the right. In the process, they're willing to subsidize and cut all the way to the bone. And this is what Amazon does with like its deliveries. This is what Apple does to some degree with a lot of its backend and infrastructure. Like they spend billions in development. They make tons of money off of it. 
But now, for instance, we, it's very meaningful to me that Apple is now on the iPhone 15 announcing these AAA titles that you can play in them and pretending like that's a equivalent to a console experience on their iPhone, which it won't be, but they're charging 60 bucks for it. Right? You see the pricing, they're like, hey, it's on par, so we're going to charge the same amount. You can ask yourself, like, well, they only want to take the cream off the top of the ecosystem. They do a few deals. They're probably going to buy a studio. I'll add this as a hot take. Apple is going to buy some medium-sized game maker in the next year or two. All right, so add that to the prediction chart. Right, but it's going to be modest. It's not going to be, I don't think it's going to be EA. But it ends up like they have to have a stake in these markets. And and then it's just a matter of like spinning the wheel, right? So they have to push into it by way of having first-party content. And then from there, attract other companies to make content for them. They don't have a choice. If you look at smartphone sales, they've been flat over the last few years. The innovation of the devices themselves have been sort of mediocre at best, right? It's like, oh, great. It's a new camera. Well, yeah, I mean, it's how much innovation does it need? Like, it does the thing it's supposed to do, right? Right. Um, So so that's only going to get cheaper, Right, and and it's only going to get like diminished returns on innovation because you can't just charge three thousand bucks for an iPhone. No, you can do that for the Vision Pro. You can charge six thousand for that one. So, so that's why they have a transition in their hardware roadmap, and they have to then look. It's like okay, the install base that exists. How do we keep people longer and get them to spending more? And that's where all this shit exists, right? Oh, sixty dollar games on the Apple ecosystem, and Netflix does gaming now. That's how that I'm works. I'm not gonna. At least yeah. it's, it that, seems that is, And so good. I think one of the things is I don't actually think Netflix has time. I don't think Netflix has the time to play this out, the time to convert their user base to be a gaming user base, uh, to point them toward these experiences. The streaming television market is too tight to have that much time. Uh, this was either mm-hmm. going to work or it wasn't, right? This was either a great idea, hot and fast, or this, mm-hmm. this idea is not going to be worth what's being put into it, which is why I think they'll give it runway. But my prediction is this will not be here in three to four years. Uh, also, in terms of daily active users, Gardenscapes, Candy Crush, Royal Match, all of them over 10 million a day. Mm-hmm. That's what crushing it in mobile looks like. you got to be bringing in microtransactions to do that kind of continual live service or else you just shed players. But what do, what okay. do I know? I'm just a dumb bitch. It's fine. Wow. Jeez. <laughs> that really escalated. Good Lord. You're entitled to an opinion, man. Good Lord. This is a safe space. You are loved. You are deserving of love. Good God. Whew. That's well, a high yeah. note. <laughs> I need to get I need I need to get my numbers out. I need to get I need to have my authority over you. <laughs> I want every analyst note from now on to end with But what I know, I'm just a stupid asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Pactor closes all of his analysis. Uh, yeah, this, this way no one pays me to be a consumer. What do I know? I'm just a dumb bitch, you know? <laughs> amazing. What Incredible. an amazing Incredible. closer. All right, let's go with that. Whew. Yeah.
Right. I need a drink. I got we got no time for pones and owns this episode because we wanted to do a big old recap of what's been going on in the game industry these past few weeks. We will, we're going to have some very special interviews coming up in future episodes. As we said at the top, we're going to be interviewing David Nieberg about his new co-authored book with Maxwell Foxman, Mainstreaming and Games Journalism. Also, Yoast has some more interviews in his back pocket with folks from Minecraft and Gen AI. All of that should be coming up this November to keep you nice and toasty warm as we turn into the fall. We'll get you some pones and owns next week. How does that sound, Yost? Sounds amazing. All right. Awesome. Then go off, go forth. Good night and good game.
at least a few more years for your son in Roblox, it seems. <laughs> it's like, get back in there. Make me some digital items. That's right. <laughs> more. <laughs> On that note, we are actually running a little bit late because we were not paying attention to the time. We will get you next week with double pawns and owns to make up for skipping that very, very important podcast segment this week. We absolutely promise. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Tune in for us next week for everything you need to know in games. Good night and good game. Good game.